Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there, whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week. It's Monday, May 3rd, 2021, and we're excited to talk about all the fish. I'm Katrina Liebeck with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Iro, a dude trying to catch all the fish. Our fish of the week is the ulican. They're in the smelt family. And when I think about spring in Alaska, it's really synonymous with these little fish returning to spawn. We've got two guests today. We've got Meredith Pokart, a fisheries consultant in Alaska, and Ted Hart, who's a fisheries specialist at the Chilkoot Indian Association. Both Ted and Meredith are based in Haines, Alaska. And thank you two for joining us today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Would one of you be able to describe what these fish look like? So they're tiny fish, but they have this huge presence. They're very shiny when they're in the ocean. They kind of turn a little, a little bit when the freshwater. I guess they kind of their color gets a little more dull, and they they fast pretty much the whole time when they're when they're approaching the freshwater. So the the males, their stomachs get really really skinny, and the the females, you know, kind of bulge with eggs. What I've noticed when I catch them is that. You know, some like the males are really bumpy, their whole body. I don't know if it's the same down in Southeast and the females are like really smooth and kind of soft. Yeah. And they kind of get this like bluish tint too. In certain different rivers, they'll kind of have a different hue to them. Like sometimes they might be a little bluer in one river and then look a little greener in another river. Oh, cool. Yeah. One of our elders, Sally Beerton, she could look at, we're pretty fortunate. We get two runs here. We get a run on the Chilkat and the Chilkoot. So Auntie Sally, she could look at, you know, a hooligan from either the Chilkat side or the Chilkoot side, and she could, she could distinguish just by just by looking at them. Oh wow! wow. I, I'm not that good. <laughs> Is it a size size issue? Yeah, I think the size and the and the color a little bit. Okay. Huh. And these guys range all the way down into California, correct? Yeah, all up and down the coast. There are similar similar trails like that that would go in up inland, you know, starting from the coast where all that wealth was gathered. So another thing we like to do is dig into the name a little bit. And we mentioned Ulican, um, and that's actually what the American Fisheries, Fisheries Society has settled on. But we know there's another, like another few, at least cup common names for these fish. Can you guys mention some of those names? I know there's probably some local ones too. Yeah, the local one I hear a lot is Ulican. It's like I O-O-L-I-G-A-N. And Ulican, many people say Hooligan. And the, the traditional name for them are sock, S-A-A-K. That's the, the Schlinget name. Yeah, candlefish. Salvation fish. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. What, talk more about that because they have a really cool history. Yeah, so their their timing is really important you know, in the, the springtime. So you can picture if you're surviving off the land, you know, thousands of years ago, pretty much all your winter food would be depleted by about now. And then all of a sudden you get this huge wave of, nutrient-rich fish. One uh, spoonful, it's enough for an elder for the day. That's how much nutrients is in it. As Ted said, like they're, they're the salvation fish to, to the natives, but, um, but also all the, the other wildlife. You know, they're kind of what bring the, the seals and the sea lions back and the whales and, and salmon. Like it's this huge kind of fanfare and yeah, definitely all the, the seabirds and there's been a study done on sea lions and that they, they kind of will follow this migration of hooligan, the spawning migration and kind of 
have dubbed that the grease wave, like this like wave that the, the marine mammals follow as the, the spawning progresses northward. And uh, for these stellar sea lions, this like huge nutrient-rich, potent meal is is a really key timing for them because then they'll go and and give birth to their pups, and they won't. The females won't eat for I think it's a couple a month maybe or a couple months while they're lactating, and so this is their last like big source of energy mm. right before they give birth, which is um, also a really key timing window. So why are these fish so important to indigenous cultures, both here in Alaska and as you go further down south? A long time ago, people, they would start to gather again. And where they would be gathering would be centered around catching hooligans. And it was said that people need to put their old squabbles or whatever, any hard feelings they had, they had to resolve that. The time of year, when it's it gets really windy on the Chilkat when the hooligans come and they start getting these big gusts of silt that blow around and there was a story of all the people they gathered around and they tied all their blankets together and they all worked with each other to to shelter each other yeah yeah it seems like fish do a really good job of bringing people together yeah they <laughs> one of their most valuable offerings were the hooligan oil so they can be rendered down in great numbers and essentially boiled right? they used to boil them in uh canoes old canoes and then you can just skim all of that oil just right off the top of the water and you can just get huge amounts of oil because of that oil there were huge trade networks that were were from the coast all the way into the interior and you know that's that's basically a currency you know a long time ago mm-hmm. uh, gold you know didn't have a whole lot of uses around here i heard people using them for uh the tips of bullets you know, it's kind of soft, but um, that that hooligan oil is truly liquid gold. Yeah, and that's kind of also how they get that the candlefish name. Um, mm-hmm. You can dry them and then just light them on fire. <laughs> we actually tried that for my husband's birthday a few years back because we were drying a bunch of them, and yeah, we lit one up and how it work? burned, and it was it worked fine. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, there are stories of when there is a big a big potlatch. Lots of visitors coming, but people with with lots of wealth, they would uh, pour hooligan oil on their fires, and then they would see all that black smoke coming out of their out of their houses, and that would that was like a sign of their wealth. So we mentioned that the, these trade networks kind of went from the coast to the interior, but you also hear about some of these salmon migrations where they go really far inland. Uh, how far do these hooligan or, or ulican or candlefish migrate into the interior uh, for their spawning runs? It's not that far, really. You know, like salmon will go miles and miles and miles upstream, but these guys are kind of more in the tidal sections of rivers. They'll push up a little bit beyond what the tide does, but yeah, most of them just spawn in the kind of intertidal zone. Cool. Yeah, they don't look like really strong swimmers, really. They'll, they'll, yeah. They literally looks like they're really fighting hard in the current sometimes, mm-hmm. and then, you know, you can almost just, just, you can just grab them by hand. You know, they're just, they're just mm-hmm. pretty docile. Is that the primary method of capture then by hand or by net or something just kind of close to shore? Yeah, mostly by net, uh, dip net. You can, uh, you know, put your net out there and then just use the, they're usually in the river. So you can just use the, the current of the river to dip, to dip down and you're supposed to go, Ooh, and that's kind of a, that's like a, 
a sign of respect for the, the hooligans is they're they're said to be a happy fish. Huh. So you gotta, you know, you gotta you gotta show your respect and you know that you're happy that they're there that they're there. That's interesting. Grateful. They can be a little skittish. So, you know, it's it's this smooth motion in the in the water. You don't wanna you don't wanna make a bunch of noise. And uh, a lot of people will use throw nets and that's that's a really good method. But it's said to be it it's said to uh, kind of uh, startle them a little bit. Most of the chill cats are very turbid. You 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 can't. Most of the time, you can't even see that they're in there. You can just you can just kind of go by all the clues. So I gotta ask, what are the clues? All the the, the thousands of birds that are around, <laughs> and sea um, lions, seals, all the commotion going on. Yeah. Right. Hey out there, everyone. One thing that we always want you to keep in mind, regardless of what it is that you're fishing for, is safety. Every week, we're going to give you a tip or two that you can use to stay safe while you're fishing. If you're like me, you may enjoy using small watercraft like canoes and kayaks to access harder-to-reach sections of lakes and rivers. These little boats are convenient to haul and launch, but they also require the operator to consider different precautions from those needed on larger vessels. Small boats, especially those designed to be paddled quickly through the water, tend to be a bit tippy. Make sure that when loading gear into the vessel, you're conscientious of weight distribution. Additionally, if you need to shift yourself around to land a fish, access more gear, or possibly unhook a snagged line, move slowly and methodically to keep yourself upright. A general bit of advice is to keep your body as low as possible. This will keep the kayaker canoe's center of gravity closer to the water surface and make you less likely to tip yourself over. When I first came out to Alaska, one thing that I, I saw that I was really surprised, I was driving out of Anchorage uh, along the Cook Inlet there, and they got these mud flats, and I hadn't seen too many bald eagles before in my life, and I expected to see these majestic birds flying or up in the trees. I saw them just stomping around in the muck. I asked someone about it, and they said that, oh, well, maybe the, maybe the hooligan are running. Uh, do you think that that might have been what that is? Could have been. I, that's one of the signs we look for up here. So we fished 20 mile in mid-May and all the eagles will line kind of the the shoreline in that mud where the mouth of the river is. So you'll see eagles, you'll see the beluga whales that time of year. Yeah, lots of seagulls or lots, I should say lots of gulls so I don't get dinged by the bird people. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's a, it's a turbid river up here as well, 20 mile. And also this is sitting up people fish them out of boats with slightly different net than when you mentioned, Ted, but similar, maybe water color wise. So the Southern Distinct Population Segment has been listed as threatened under the ESA. How is the Northern Distinct Population Segment doing? Yeah, it's a good question. That's, I mean, that question there is the reason we started doing the the mark recapture and the um, eDNA, environmental DNA population monitoring, is to to get an idea of how healthy that population is. And we've seen some crazy fluctuations. We started this mark recapture in 2010, and we've seen many really really good years but we have seen a, a couple really small returns so i assume that within state waters adf and g alaska department of fish and game is in charge of management but is there any co-management with any uh tribal authorities it's kind of just just kind of like an understood thing a little bit it's it's kind of just um pretty much just for the subsistence users and they just mm -hmm. they just take what they need for that season you know share share with others yeah, I would say the same as well. I mean, it's a 
you know, on Fishing Games website, and it's always good to check specifically for the regulations, but you do need to have your fishing license. But in terms of limits, at least here on 20 Mile, I think it's fairly unlimited. And that was kind of something I wanted to mention. Um, we always like to think about like how much we're going to eat for the year and how many, you know, how many meals we want. We eat about eight hooligan per meal and maybe every couple of weeks. So, I mean, looking at like 100 to 200 hooligan, which I think converts to maybe four gallons or something, and you can get that pretty quickly. And yeah, I guess just go with that in mind because um, it, it's very easy to overharvest them. And then you're like, man, what do I do with all these hooligan? And you just, you don't want to end up with a bunch of hooligan left over in May when the new run is starting. So that's just a tip over the years that I've kind of figured out. Yeah. It's interesting. Like on big gears, you know, it's, there's obviously like a ton of excitement when they first show up and everyone wants to get down to the river and fish. And, but if the run lasts for 10 or so days on a big year, like by the end of it, there might still be a ton of fish in the river, but everyone's had their fill. Yeah. And also, um, it's really good to give them a day or so when they first start going up. They say the scouts are go up first. And then if you let them get established, then you'll, mm-hmm. you're guaranteed a, a nice big long run. So you can, you know, it's easy, you know, it's easy to get excited. There's, there's fish everywhere. They're easy to catch. And it's just, it's good to take a step back when they're first showing up, let them get established really well. And then it's just going to be a nice, a nice, long, consistent run. For someone who hasn't eaten a lot of hooligan, what do these fish actually taste like? It could be similar to a trout, maybe. It's like, um, not quite as firm, I guess, the, the, the meat. But yeah, it's kind of, they're kind of hard to explain. They're, they've kind of have their own unique flavor a little bit. Yeah, I mean, you definitely can taste that they have a super high oil content. But they're, yeah, I wouldn't even necessarily say that they are that fishy. Yeah, they're just kind of a taste of their own. <laughs> they're delicious. <laughs> <laughs> I really love pickled hooligan um i I just love pickled anything but (laughs) and pickled fish in general what do you pickle them with i'm just like a typical pickling brine it's the same brine that i use for pickled salmon which is like yeah i don't even know off the top of my head but yeah vinegar salt dill okay garlic yeah that sounds good um we've smoked them and i think the way we eat them the most probably is fried so dip them in some egg Mm -hmm. and then some panko breadcrumbs and then deep fry them yeah and once they're fried the little spine just pops right out and that's the kids really like that and um yeah you just like dust them in flour and put them in a really hot oven and just like turn them once they get super crispy my cousin used to call them crispy fish (laughs) (laughs) do we know why they're so oily like just biology wise i don't know like what benefit they personally get out of it but obviously like everything that eats them gets a huge benefit from that but i think these like these forage fish are just typically really high in in fat content so they're feeder fish it's a very high quality oil it's like it's like olive oil i really like the texture of it is the oil still used commonly today then or are people transitioning more to just eating the fish regular and not regular but whole it's a little bit of an acquired taste um there's different grades some the old timers used to make it really strong 
but they say the stronger it is, the more the more medicines in there, the more the more potent it is. Um, some of my friends make it, and it's just really light, really really mild flavor. I'm curious how you make it. I can ask that after you finish, but I I would like to know how how to make it. Basically, you gather enough to fill a a, a great big pit. It's like a eight by ten pit or something like that, and it, you just many many gallons of hooligan, and you put them in there. In, line it with grass and organic material, and then you let them you let them ripen for uh, let's say four to ten days. And they say once the once that the eye you can see their eyes they like turn a little red, then they're ready. Mm. And then when they're ready, you transfer them into a giant boiling pot, and then you you cook them. It takes a long time. And you kind of like break break you had use like an old paddle and you kind of like stir it up and then they kind of break apart. And then you start pouring uh, like some cold water in there on top. And then all these, these bubbles of oil just start coming to the surface. And I think people in one cook, they can get like five gallons of oil. Wow. And then sometimes it's takes a few cooks and they can get, they can get more Then the more, the more you ripen it, the more oil you get also. Great. Thank you, too, for joining us. This has been a really, really neat discussion and learning about the cultural aspects down in Southeast has been yeah, very, very interesting. And we really thank you for sharing that. Yeah, thank you both. Thank you, guys. Yeah, thank, thank you, guys. So get out there and enjoy all the fish. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebich, and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Racecar. The show is produced by David Hoffman, co-produced and story edited by Charlotte Moore. Post-production by Garrett Tiedemann. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Region, Office of External Affairs. As the service reflects on 150 years of fisheries conservation, we honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individuals, tribes, the state of Alaska, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish.